0: Well, it's a little after uh, 6.30 p.m., and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley, and my partner uh, Jim Dwyer is uh, on his way up north, going to enjoy a long week, so to speak, uh, before the start of school here. He's a teacher, of course, in the Ann Arbor Public Schools, and uh, I'm sure that his daughters will... (laughs) Enjoy a little cooler weather up uh, up farther north. This is maybe the first uh, comfortably hot day that we've had in quite some time, and the weather's been perfect, uh, all things considered, for the last several weeks. But uh, we need some rain. <laughs> anyway, um, a lot of uh, interesting developments uh, over the week. Obviously, the shocking... Uh, News today that uh, Musharraf uh, has resigned in Pakistan. I heard that late-breaking story last night on BBC. And, of course, uh, plenty of Olympic news and the situation in Georgia, uh, and we're talking here about Georgia of the former Soviet Union, uh, continues to fester. Uh, I guess I'll get started with a couple of brain damage awards. Uh, starting with myself. (laughs) Last week I reported that Daniel Ellsberg had passed away, but I had sort of heard this on BBC radio and was sort of early in the morning, coming in and out of sleep, and it wasn't uh, uh, Daniel Ellsberg that passed away. It was actually uh, Anthony Russo, who collaborated with Daniel Ellsberg. And so when I heard... um, a major figure in the Pentagon Papers had died. I think that was how I heard it. I just assumed it was Ellsberg. But the importance of uh, Anthony Russo was that he was the quote unquote Xerox aide because of his quote, and I'm reading from his obituary here, uh, dated the uh, 9th of August in the New York Times by Douglas Martin. He was the Xerox age, Uh, Xerox aide, because of his role in finding a copying machine and working long nights to reproduce the 7,000-page Pentagon Papers study. The obituary goes into the details um, (laughs) of how this whole story developed. And uh, needless to say, most of the rest of the comments I made about the Pentagon Papers, of course, were essentially accurate. Uh, In June of 1967, Robert McNamara, who was then Secretary of Defense, and was growing increasingly disenchanted with the Vietnam War, Um, he was counseling Lyndon Johnson privately that things uh, were not going well, even though he was publicly maintaining a sort of semi-optimistic, quasi-realistic face about the problems in the Vietnam War. Anyway, he did commission a study um, that was going to be called a classified history of the Vietnam War from 1945 to 1967. 1945, of course, is important in 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 the whole development of the history of the war in Vietnam because if you go back and you check the actual facts, the first American to die in Vietnam actually died in 1945 several weeks after VJ Day. Um, This was a member of the OSS, uh, which was the precursor of the CIA. And um, needless to say, Anthony Russo uh, collaborated uh, with Daniel Ellsberg in um, basically leaking the documents uh, to the New York Times uh, that were eventually published in 1971. And of course, it was this paranoia um, that Nixon had that, of course, eventually led to Watergate and his resignation. And it's interesting that uh, Perez Musharraf uh, resigned uh, in the same month that Richard Nixon did, um, <laughs> August. And um, there, of course, were Russo and, and Ellsberg were briefly put on trial, but the case was essentially dismissed on grounds that the government had violated. Um, They were basically up to mischief involving the prosecution. The obituary notes that uh, Judge William M. Byrne dismissed the case in 1973 after several bizarre twists. This included the judge learning that the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist had been burglarized and that the FBI had lost records of perhaps illegally taped phone conversations, as well as the fact that during the trial, the judge himself was approached about becoming director of the FBI. And these have, this, of course, by this point, um, in uh, the spring of 1973, um, absolutely explosive revelations were coming out uh, regarding the Nixon shenanigans, uh, if we can call them that, Uh, By this point, in fact, um, John Ehrlichman and H.R. Haldeman and John Dean and Richard Kleindienst had all been forced out of the the White House, so to speak, uh, with Nixon famously characterizing Ehrlichman and Haldeman as two of the finest public servants I've ever known. Uh, their exact roles in Watergate uh, are fascinating. And, of course, by this point, John Dean had become aware that uh, there was a massive cover-up uh, going on in the Nixon White House. And uh, began su- he be- be- began uh, becoming suspicious of some of uh, Nixon's conversations with John Dean. Nixon, needless to say, Nixon at this point was taping... These conversations, and was trying to suggest that he might be somehow in the dark about what really was behind Watergate and whatnot. But the uh, yeah, the break-in of this uh, psychiatrist's office at uh, Daniel Ellsberg's uh, psychiatrist was interesting because it was one of the capers pulled off by the so-called Plumbers, a unit founded uh, in the Nixon White House. In the summer of 1971, that was specifically designed to plug leaks, and uh, it was Nixon's paranoia about the Pentagon Papers that eventually led to the Watergate break-in. Mysteries, of course, still abound a little bit about the exact motive for why the plumbers eventually went from breaking into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist to uh, actually breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic Party. But uh, one prominent theory that's never really been, shall we say, dismissed completely is the fact that Larry O'Brien, chairman of the Democratic Party in 1972, had been a consultant and aide to Howard Hughes and that Nixon was frightened about the alleged $200,000 cash loan that uh, Howard Hughes had given to Richard Nixon's brother due to his failing hamburger stand out in California Watergate the comedy uh, needs to be written in any event um, it was Anthony Russo that passed away and I'm giving myself a brain damage award because I sort of misheard what what I thought I heard on the BBC and I made a mistake Well, uh, another quick brain damage award. I don't know why the Ann Arbor News uh, last week decided to publish a column by a Los Angeles Times sports writer named Bill Plasky. I'm assuming that's how his name is pronounced. In which he somehow suggested, he said, let's hope Michael Phelps is clean. I was like, what? What nonsense? I mean, this guy <laughs> has already won Olympic me- uh, medals, he's gold medals, uh, and other medals. And uh, to somehow suggest that he's uh, doping or any of that is just puerile nonsense. Um, this guy's won world championships. I mean, he's he's been on the swimming circle for, for many a year now, and I think that most uh, experts can all agree that this uh, Michael Phelps, who's been living in Ann Arbor the past several years training uh, here in uh, the, the city of Ann Arbor, Uh, is uh, certainly the greatest swimmer that's ever lived. And uh, that's just proof, not only the last Olympics, but uh, his spectacular performance in this Olympics is certainly one of the most uh, (laughs) unparalleled uh, sporting accomplishments in the history of human civilization. And congratulations to Jamaica. Jamaica, Jamaica, Jamaica. Uh, Usain Boltz, and what a perfect name for a... Sprinter Bolt. Uh, that that uh, world record in the 100-yard dash was something out of this world. And uh, since I'm on the subject of Jamaica, I'd also like to give a plug to uh, my friend Brian Tomzik. He's got a little, uh, little celebration coming up uh, later this week, uh, showing a documentary um, at the Michigan Theater uh, at 7.30, um, a documentary about Lee Scratch Perry, And uh, he will be spinning discs later on in the evening down at uh, the Blind Pig. The event at the Michigan Theater is a fundraiser for WCBN-FM Arbor, so I definitely encourage all people to go see the documentary and uh, maybe do some dancing uh, into the uh, wee hours of the evening later that night. Um economic uh, news we haven't really done too much on the econ on the economic front uh, in in recent weeks uh, due to all of these uh, unusual <laughs> events in uh, foreign uh, you know in Pakistan and and uh, and whatnot but it was interesting that uh, just in today's associated press the project for excellence in journalism analyzed more than 5,000 economic stories by 48 news outlets in 2007 and in the first half of 2008, and the study found that reliance on government data to track the economy is leading to coverage that can, le- uh, can lag months behind actual economic conditions, and that this has meant reporters are writing about weakening economic trends at the very moment that conditions are starting to improve or vice versa. Now I would argue that things have not improved (laughs) um, at all. Uh, In fact, just this past month, uh, the government's official data on unemployment indicates that it's uh, gone up to 5.7 percent, that 463,000 jobs have disappeared this year in the United States, and that this represented the seventh consecutive months uh, in which job losses are occurring. Recall, of course, that the economy needs to produce 150,000 jobs a month just to break even. And uh, the data from this month is particularly alarming in, in certain areas of the economy. For instance, For teenagers, the jobless rate rose to 20.3% in July, the highest since 1992. And the reason that this seven consecutive months is significant is uh, that in American history, there's never been a, quote, recession um, in which those conditions are not present. The government has not officially announced a recession. Um... A recession is technically two consecutive quarters with negative growth, and uh, there's even some debate, by the way, about the last uh, recession that occurred in the early months of the Bush administration as to whether it actually was a recession. Uh, There's a kind of murky group of economists that call themselves the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and they announce a recession after they've determined that there is a recession. And so long as the government is reporting either weak growth or uh, just so long as it's not reporting negative growth, the threshold for a quote recession uh, just can't, sim- can't exist. And what's been occurring in recent months is that the American dollar, which uh, heretofore has been very weak, although it's, it's gone up in recent the last couple of weeks uh, slightly. Um, has allowed export growth to sort of counteract um, this clear slowing in the American economy. When you see a chart showing that construction, for instance, total construction, has pretty much declined for well over a year, uh, almost a year and a half. I mean, the graph on this is just unmistakable. And we, of course, all know that the auto industry here in Michigan is uh, severely affected by uh, what's been going on. And uh, the employers and the nation's uh, employers did cut their payrolls by 51,000 jobs for the seventh consecutive months. And one economist is quoted as saying, what we are seeing instead is a steady hemorrhaging of jobs, and that is going to continue until housing stabilizes and stops dragging down the economy. I think I once read somewhere where construction and housing accounts for roughly 15% of economic activity here in the United States. And by the way, exports are about the same percentage. So if exports are slightly up, and they, they have been slightly up here and there, um, and I predicted this long ago that uh, agricultural um, companies and he- heavy construction uh, uh, companies like John Deere and Caterpillar would do well this year uh, with the declining dollar and the fact that they these this uh, equipment that's, that is needed globally for infrastructure. But getting back to the specifics of the unemployment information, Uh, courtesy of uh, Louis Uccelli. As I noted, uh, unemployment for teens went up to 20.3%, a 2.2 percentage increase in just a month and was the highest since 1992. And this contributed significantly to this rise in uh, unemployment. He goes on to write, in either case, employers are laying off excess staff or reducing their hours or holding back on weekly raises, which have only risen at an annual rate of 2.8% in July for the typical white-collar or blue-collar worker. That is well below the rate of inflation of more than 4%. And I would argue that the real rate of inflation is significantly higher than that. Uh, just last year, um, and this was really before oil went over the $100 a barrel mark, just in the year 2007, food and energy uh, increased for the average consumer somewhere between 11 and 15%. And needless to say, we've seen those kinds of increases yet again. And I would argue that the inflation statistics that the government keep are inherently inaccurate. Um, because they measure an arbitrary basket of goods. And this does not affect, you know, the lower costs of stereo equipment are sort of immaterial uh, if you already have a stereo, because <laughs> you're not buying a stereo. But you've got to buy food and gas pretty much weekly, uh, unless, of course, you're a breatharian. And I mentioned the breatharians. I'll just crack a little joke about that. The big news over the weekend, of course, was the WCBN won the Kickball League, uh, defeating the People's Food Co-op in stunning fashion, I'm told. Uh, it was a sort of a blowout, as they say in sports. I went to this little celebration last night uh, for the Kickball League, and congratulations to all of the people that participate. It's a lot of fun and all that. You get outside and get to run around and act like children again. And wouldn't it be a refreshing form of therapy if more of us uh, acted like children more often? Because uh, this uh, relieves tension and uh, probably even more than listening to WCBN is beneficial to your health. But having uh, seen and heard about the results, I uh, pithily noted to one of my friends that the breatharians, defeated the vegetarians. So CBN, of course, are, we are the breatharians. And uh, food and gas are going up. They've been consistently going up. And on to some more details about these unemployment numbers. Manufacturing and construction jobs lost 57,000, and uh, nearly 30,000 temporary workers across many industries, quote, also disappeared. Uh, Louis Sucicelli continues, in the environment, the percentage of 16- to 19-year-olds holding jobs fell to 32.5% in July from 33.1%, the lowest since the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been collecting data since 1948. And I, that is significant. And... Um, Another relevant statistic is that the unemployment rate for men in their prime working years, 25 to 40, uh, 54, jumped three-tenths of a uh, percentage point to 4.9 percent. And um, it's tough out there. And this, of course, is contributing to the uh, continuing erosion of, of the, the housing market here in the United States, as I said, spending has just been on a downward trajectory now for almost a year and a half with no end in sight. We're continuing to see these financial companies with massive problems. Um, And I think that uh, most experts point out that uh, the cycle of jobs losses are seen by most experts, continuing well into 2009, and I've even heard the scary number of 6.7% mentioned as a peak number here on the unemployment rate. So we're, we're talking about another full percentage point over the next several months, uh, if not a year, and how, how this can help John McCain is anybody's guess. John McCain, of course, has been touting his uh, close connections to uh, President Sakashvili of Georgia, and Condoleezza Rice hastily uh, flew over there to give him moral support. Uh, as I and Jim both commented last week, the situation in Georgia is much more complicated than just simple, quote, Russian aggression. This is a complicated Um, variety of of, uh, problems that have been festering for many years regarding American-Russian relations. And it's been this expansion of NATO onto the borders of Russia, uh, specifically the Baltic states, uh, the Ukraine and and Georgia, which of course is in this key strategic area uh, between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea, Uh, And this is where this pipeline is. And as we noted, the pipeline has been attacked in uh, recent weeks, but not by Russians, but by Kurdish separatists. And these uh, attacks have occurred in Turkey, actually, the Turkish part of this uh, uh, Azerbaijan-Turkish pipeline that goes through Georgia. So John McCain, has uh, he made some incredible statement last week. We are all Georgians now. I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> talking about. And obviously the United States is in no position uh, militarily to do anything about this situation. And um, Saakashvili's involvement in fomenting this uh, recent violence uh, cannot just be written off as something that didn't happen and while the United States official government position is obviously siding with Saakashvili, um, it's very troubling when we learn that one of John McCain's top uh, foreign policy advisors, Randy Scheunemann, has has been a consultant to the Georgian government for um, many years now. Uh, It's a little murky how much money he's actually received and what his advice has been, but uh, John McCain has these very strange connections with advisors and lobbying and contracts and kickbacks, and it's something that the media, I think, has been a little, none too aggressive in investigating, and I, for one, find it very troubling. Now, another bizarre story that's been... Percolating in the last several weeks is this anthrax business, and uh, apparently today the FBI and <laughs> some sort of public relations uh, effort has gone out and tried to um, suggest through so-called genetic analysis that the uh, anthrax that you know the the so-called genetic code of this this uh, flask of uh, weaponized anthrax that was in um, Mr. Ivans's lab was, in fact, the letter, the, the anthrax that was sent to the letters that uh, Tom Daschle and uh, several media outlets, including Tom Brokaw, received. Also, it's important to remember that um, Patrick Leahy also was sent a letter, but because presumably Ivins, uh, misaddressed, the, uh, misaddressed the, the, uh, the envelope, that letter sort of got lost in the mail, literally, for several months. So when the initial anthrax attack occurred back in October of na- uh, 2001, Shortly after 9/11, and needless to say, shortly after um, the United States had started bombing Afghanistan and the uh, you know the Taliban were quote on the run. I've gone back and I've checked some of the clippings, by the way, on the, on some of the chronology of those events, and there are a couple of things that are very striking. For one thing, the government at no time made it clear that uh, American, an American was behind the anthrax attack. Uh, this became part of a kind of a mythology that was left hanging, so to speak, in which it was, it was suggested that um, al-Qaeda might have been behind it. And it's interesting that even as late as May of 2005, and I'll just read this article by Eric Lipton, The title says, "Cada letters are said to show pre-9-11 anthrax plans. (laughs) That's not exactly connecting the anthrax to the attack in America, but there's that connection there. Uh, And this is basically an interesting story in which Eric Lipton, who's a pretty decent investigative reporter at the uh, New York Times writes that al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan began to assemble the equipment necessary to build a rudimentary biological weapons laboratory before the September 11th attack. Letters released by the Defense Department show. Now, I bring this date up. this This is dated the 21st of May, 2005, because this is more than three years after the United States FBI, quote-unquote, knew that uh, um, that this, aims, this so-called AIMS strain was clearly, it clearly originated somewhere in America. And, of course, Stephen Hatfeld, who was incorrectly accused on all of this, was being dragged through the media as a suspect on this whole business. And uh, it's just... Quite amazing how the government sort of allowed the myth of the anthrax uh, business to be loosely connected with uh, Al Qaeda. And I, I wrote la- or I reported last week that Michael Massing, within months uh, actually, literally within six weeks noted that the New York Times in late October through articles written by Judith Miller, uh, Stephen Engelberg, and William Broad were connecting anthrax to Iraq, (laughs) which, of course, became part of the weapons of mass destruction mythology that, during 2002, was being built up specifically by Condoleezza Rice, Dick Cheney, George Bush. You know, it's been widely reported that a just several months ago that a study has come out indicating that um, 952 lies, public lies, and this is just the top officials, um, by the president, and I think the president finished first with 252, were uttered uh, regarding the mythology about Saddam Hussein and And whatnot. And by the way, you know, Saddam Hussein clearly was engaged in um, chemical weapon warfare uh, during the Iran Iraq war. Interestingly, of course, at the time when the attacks occurred in 1988, it was the U.S. government that actually suggested Iran was behind this uh, particular attack that occurred in. Uh, Haditha, the mustard gas, the sarin, whatnot. And um, this is very troubling stuff. I mean, this was part of the, of course, during the 1980s, the United States was supplying Saddam Hussein with um, intelligence and quiet assistance through Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, needless to say, were bankrolling this... uh, this this uh, Iran this I- Iran Iraq war, and um, it you know th- th- there's still a lot of unanswered questions, and I am convinced that this Bruce Ivins character probably was the anthrax suspect. I mean I think that the without getting into the details of the you know, murkiness about the genetic code in this so-called flask of anthrax that he had in his lab. He apparently threw the FBI off track, by the way, by giving them a different sample of anthrax. And this is why they were forcing um, their focus on, on Stephen Hatfeld. But, I mean, even in the recent chronology prepared by the New York Times, the... In February of 2002, the FBI narrows down suspects to a, quote, short list of 18 to 20 people with the means, opportunity, and possible motive to send the anthrax letters. And we know that Ivins worked with equipment that allowed the anthrax to be dried out.